Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You know, if you hear that expression, born-again Christian, if you read that in the news or on social media, it's almost always meant to be negative. Oh, he's one of those born-again Christians, you know, almost as if there were degrees of Christianity. You know, you've got the legacy Christians who were born into it and their family members of Christianity. You've got the occasional Christians who show up at Easter or Christmas and whether they need to or not. And then you've got the uh, churchgoer Christians. They just always seem to be wanting to go to church. And then there's the more committed Christians who wear the WWJD stuff, and they're asking themselves, what would Jesus do? And then you have this sort of radical element, this sort of fringe group that we call the born-again Christians. You know, they're the ones that cause all the ruckus. And you got to watch out for those born-again Christians, right? But here's the thing. There's only one kind of Christian. It's the born-again kind. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. John 3 is just so crystal clear on this, so let's look at it. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we've got a Pharisee. First thing we read about Nicodemus is he was a Pharisee. Now, during Jesus' time, there were four religious sects in Judea and Galilee. Uh, The Sadducees were basically practicing agnostics. They really didn't believe anything. They believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in eternal life. You know, somebody said that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Sadducees were political power people. They ran the temple. They loved Rome and they sort of catered to the wealthy. That was the Sadducees. The other group were on the other extreme were the Essenes. That's the Dead Sea Scroll guys. And if you picture kind of like the Amish, they were sort of cloistered away in their own little world. Then there were the Zealots who were trying to overthrow Rome's power. Maybe that would be like the moral majority kind of kind of uh, people of their time. And then there were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the most committed of all. In fact, during the time of Jesus, there were never more than about 6,000 Pharisees in the world, but they held sway over culture. In fact, the, the word Pharisee itself means committed, and they had, they had pledged a vow of commitment to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, the problem was the Ten Commandments were at times a bit vague, like what exactly does it mean to honor your father and mother? What does it mean to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? And so over the course of about 200 years, various Jewish rabbis in the Pharisee branch would, uh, uh, you know, pontificate uh, about various aspects of the application of one of these laws of the Ten Commandments. And those teachings and oral traditions were somehow compiled into a, a Jewish book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was essentially rules to help us to understand the 10 rules, right? And then they added another book called the Talmud, which is basically a commentary on the Mishnah. So it's really funny, and this is what legalism does, uh, is then now you have a commentary on the commentary on the original. And it, and it got to the point where it was just absolutely ridiculous. Like, 
especially in, in regard to laws pertaining to the Sabbath, because the question was, if we're going to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, then we have to identify work. What is work? Which is really the wrong question, because the Sabbath was not about work, it was about rest. And so they really should have identified what is rest, but the legalist isn't going isn't to move on that side because that's too much like grace. So we're going to push toward that legalistic side. So what is work? And they came up with all these ideas. For example, to light a candle on the Sabbath is work. So if you didn't light the candle on Friday, you better not light it on Saturday, right? Uh, walking a thousand feet is considered work. One of them was that uh, you can't tie a knot on the Sabbath. Now, here's the problem, okay? Uh, if you think about the practical application of this, because here's what happened. The Pharisees basically held sway over the practical daily life of all the Jewish people. And they had all of these bizarre and ridiculous rules that, that people were trying to walk through, but then they're still just trying to get through life. And if you can't tie a knot on the Sabbath, think of all the implications of that. One of which was, what if you've got, what if you're thirsty and you forgot to tie your bucket to the rope to let the bucket down into the well to get some water? Well, there were exceptions to the various rules, of course, but tying a rope to a bucket was not one of the exceptions. So if you didn't tie your bucket to your rope on Friday, you were not allowed to get a drink on Saturday. Now, there was an exception. For example, you could tie a knot in a woman's corset. Ladies, you were okay. You could tie a knot in your corset. And so to work around, what they realized real quickly was, well, then I can take the corset and tie the corset to the rope, and then I can tie, take the bucket and tie the bucket to the corset, and I've not tied the rope to the bucket, but I can get a drink of water by letting it down through the corset. <laughs> now, you had a wet corset, but, you know, that was a small price you had to pay. That's how bizarre and ridiculous it was. And that was the world of the Pharisee. That was the world of Nicodemus. And so when you say he was a Pharisee, you, you realize immediately he was tangled up in this twisted legalistic world. Secondly, it says he was a leader. It says ruler of the Jews. And Nicodemus would have then been on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council. In fact, sometimes it was just called the council. There were 70 Jews on that council, primarily of the branch of Pharisees, with the high priest who would have been a Sadducee leading and ruling over the council. If you remember, it was the, it was the Sanhedrin or the council that sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. And so they held sway over the religious, spiritual, practical, judicial life of every Jew everywhere in the world. A very, very powerful council. Uh, consider it more like Congress and the Senate all kind of rolled together in one. And so that's Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus at night. Look at verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, some say he was sneaking around. Why won't he come in the light of day? But look, don't be too judgmental on Nicodemus on this. I mean, the fact that he came speaks volumes. If you look up just a few verses above John chapter 3 to the end of John chapter 2, you will see that Jesus has just gone through the temple and braided a whip and chased Jews out of the temple. He chased the Jewish leaders out of the temple, you know, and it's just this comedic scene, and he's throwing the money tables over, and he's doing all kinds of things that are undermining their whole, not only religious system, but their political system. 
And everybody's really mad about it. But now here's one of those Jewish leaders coming to learn from Jesus. I mean, you have to be careful not to always judge everybody collectively. Um, I have a friend that likes to tell the story of a time he was uh, driving through traffic in this town, and he, he found himself behind a church bus, only it was, you know, it was an old school bus that they had repainted. They painted the yellow, and they had named it the Happy Bus, and on the back it said, follow the happy bus to whatever church this was. And he said he pulled up at a stop sign and he looked through the windows in the back of the bus and there were two little kids just beating the soup out of this one little kid. And my friend Matt said, for that kid, that was not the happy bus. (laughs) And I, I came to realize from that, not everyone on the same bus has the same experience. Most of the guys on the Pharisee bus hated Jesus because they loved their legalism. They loved their sin. They loved the control they felt over not only themselves, but they loved the control that they exercised over other people. And yet here's Nicodemus, who's an outlier, and his experience with the legalists has left him desperate for something real. And so he came by night, but he still came. I mean, you have to you have to slide into his sandals. He, he runs the risk of losing everything, not just some things, everything. I mean, if, if word gets out that he becomes a follower of Jesus, the life that he has always known is gone. He's not on the council anymore. He's, he's no longer a congressman, that's for sure. He's not even really a Pharisee, probably won't be allowed in the synagogue, might even lose his family. You know, there's an interesting story about uh, Paul. You know, Paul... The, tells us at one point that he, that he cast his vote uh, on the council, which tells you that Paul was a member of the council. Now, two things were required to be on the council. First, you had to be at least 30, and second, you had to be married. So we know from that that Paul was 30 and that he was married. But when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he tells them, I wish that all of you were just like me in, in the condition that I'm in, which is single. So Paul at one time was married, and now he's single. Did his wife die? We don't know, but here's what, here's what I think probably happened. You see, Paul was a rising star in the Jewish world. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He grew up, was educated by the very best. Everything about Paul was, this is the guy to watch, right? He's going to be the political power guy, and he's persecuting the church. He's doing those things that are going to win him applause from the people in his world. And then all of a sudden, he's on the road to Damascus, and he sees this blinding light. And in this blinding light, he comes to realize that it's Jesus he's been persecuting, and he gives his life fully over to Jesus. And in that moment, Paul lost everything. He was kicked off the council, kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of everything. Are you tracking with me? And then when he gets home, now think about it from her perspective, Paul's wife's perspective. She's a good Jewish girl, came up through the Jewish system. She's married to one of the most influential people, the rising star of the Jewish political scene. In every way, everything's going her way. And when she walks into a room, everybody goes, ooh, that's Saul's wife. And, you know, and she just sort of soaks that up. And then he comes home one day and says he's joined this, in her mind, this religious cult of Jesus and everything's gone. And so was she. I'm out of here. You know, Paul later wrote, he said, if you have an unbelieving wife who chooses to abandon you, let her go. And there are many scholars who think Paul was writing that from personal experience. Well, Nicodemus would have probably experienced that same thing. So it's no wonder that he comes at night. He's coming at night. He's probably 
trying to slowly wade into this thing. He's probably got some questions he wants Jesus to answer. Maybe grab a cup of coffee. And he appeals to Jesus as a teacher. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God because you do these amazing things. And I really think that his appeal to Jesus as a teacher was because maybe he was hoping for some insight, you know, What I get in Nicodemus is a guy that's just grieving over his personal sin. And he doesn't know how to resolve the conflict because he knows that the legalism is not working. He knows that that legalism cannot compensate for the stuff that's going on inside of him. He knows there's got to be more. And so he's like, Rabbi, I know you're a teacher. And I think from that, he's like, maybe there's some teaching that can help me in this. And Jesus cuts right to the heart of the problem. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly. In the Greek, that's amen, amen. It's where we get the word, it's where we get the expression amen. Amen doesn't mean in closing, you know, we say a prayer, amen, and we think, well, that means uh, I'm out now, God, sort of like uh, over and out. That's what we think amen is. But amen really means truly. And when Jesus had something really important to say, he would use this expression, truly, truly, I say to you. And he says, unless one is born again, And that word again can mean again in terms of repetition if he's born over. But it also means to radically begin anew. And it also means from above. And and in this case, it means all three. So if you're reading it, some of your translations may even read born from above. It's all collectively the same idea. This radical transformation that occurs in an encounter with Jesus. Unless one is born like that, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you must be born again. There is no other way. At first, when I, when I read this, I thought Jesus was being terse, dismissive. But I don't see that now. I, I think he was being compassionate. He's like, Nick, teaching isn't going to do this. It's not going to get it. You, you don't need more information. You need to surrender. You have to be born again. There's no other way. You can't go into this thing in increments. It's not as if you... you You can wade into it like you're wading into a cold pond. You have to go all in. It's all or nothing. Burn the ships, wreck your life, be willing to lose everything, but it's worth it. It's like what Paul said. All those things that I had before Jesus, I count as loss. And that word loss is a beautiful word. It's rubbish. It's dung. I count it as loss. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And at first I thought, well, maybe he's confused, but now I think I missed it. I I think if you read this carefully, you'll see he's not confused, he's inquiring. You see, this is the very issue he's dealing with. Nicodemus has got guilt and regret like we all do. And he's like, I can't through my performance in any way compensate for that. I know the only way to get out of it would be to somehow have a do-over, to go back in time and somehow fix it before it happens. Because once it happens, the consequences of that are carried with me for the rest of my life. But how can you get there? That's what he's saying. I get it, but how do we unwind time? How do you go back to the beginning? I'd love to erase my past. But the past isn't so easily erased. We can't crawl back into the womb of our mother and be reborn. 
I mean, anyone that's ever lived with regret knows this pain, right? I mean, aren't there things in all of our lives that we've done that we'd love a redo on, we'd love to undo? I mean, think of that worst moment in your life. That, there are moments in your life when even to recall the memory, you cringe. Okay, I'll tell you the, the worst day of my life in high school that I remember. Okay, I'm going to tell you all. I think I've told you all before, but I, I forget what I've said. But if I tell you all, don't tell anybody, Okay. So I'm a sophomore. You know what the word sophomore means? It means wise fool. Sophia's wisdom, moron is we get that, right? So you're a wise fool, which means you've learned just enough to be dangerous. And so I'm in the gym at Denison High School. Two things a sophomore wants is to be respected by his buddies and admired by the ladies. That's all you're thinking. It's a pretty simple life. And you know you're in football, so you've been working out. And you can always tell a sophomore when he's been working out because he's grown a muscle or two. And once a kid grows a muscle, he wants to show it off. So you can tell if a kid's been working out because you say, hey, how do you get down to that spot? And you go, well, you go down there, and then you go over there. That's how they do it, right? And you'll catch them looking at their tricep at their desk. Hey, I've got a tricep there, you know. So I'm in the gym. i got these girls there, these guys there, and... There's a box on the wall, and there's a crank in it. And in the old days, I guess, you would crank the basketball goals up with the crank, right? Now they're motorized, but in those days, they were a crank, and the crank is sticking out of the wall, and it's about this high, and I'm sitting here talking, doing my Rocky thing, you know, trying to flex a little bit. I know, it's embarrassing. <laughs> and so I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what we're talking about. Everybody's there. So for some reason, I kind of do a little bit of a chin-up on it. And then I don't know what happened. I think I temporarily went insane. But for some reason, I threw my feet up like I'm going to swing on this thing. Only I didn't know it. I learned it quickly. That crank is not permanent. You see, they're made to come out. And I didn't know that. But when I threw my feet up over my head, the crank came out. And the first thing to hit on the floor, my feet were probably about this high, and my was my shoulders and my head on that. Fortunately, it was a floating maple floor, had some give, but it knocked me out. I'm out. And I still got the crank in my hand. <laughs> and I woke up, and I looked up, and the girls are all like in shock. And the guys are like doubled over laughing as hard as they possibly can. And I remember saying... What happened? <laughs> if I even think about that today, I cringe. You know what? Wouldn't it be great if I could go back to five seconds before that happened? Just five seconds. Just give me five seconds. Just go back in time. Get that time machine. Back in time. Hey, die. whatever you do, don't throw your feet up. You see, that crank will come out. Okay? That's all I got to say. I'm back to the future. Wouldn't that be great? Now listen, I'm telling you a story about a time when I let myself down. Literally. I let myself down. But then I think about all the times that are really serious when I let the Lord down. Those times. Can you remember that time for you? Wouldn't you love to go back? 
to erase that moment, just to get there before it happens. Look, you can't go back and change the past. But you can be made new and leave the past behind. That's what it means to be born again. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And man, this statement keeps me up at night. Because here's the question, and it's, it's an important question. Is he referring to two births? Unless you're born of the water, that's a birth. And unless you're born of the Spirit, that's a second birth. And that's the way a lot of people translate this. They go, well, the water birth is the natural birth because there's a lot of water involved in the. That's how I was taught in seminary. There's a lot of water involved in the birth. And the spiritual birth is the second birth. That's the birth of the Spirit where I come alive in Christ. And, you know, that's where I've been. But, you know, as I begin to read this and read others and, and pray about it and think about it, my problem with that is nowhere can I find the expression water birth as a metaphor or an allegory of natural birth. It just doesn't show up anywhere. In fact, instead, it would use the words flesh or natural. So if you're talking about a natural birth, it would be that he had a fleshly birth, right? Or that he was, he was born naturally in, 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 in terms of, of the first birth, right? And so then I begin to wonder, you know, about this. What if it's water baptism and spirit baptism? Now, follow me on this because I don't want to lose you and split hairs, okay? But what if he's not talking about two births per se, but he's talking about the two things that are required to be reborn? Because isn't that the question Nicodemus asked? The question Nicodemus asked was, how can one be reborn? And Jesus says, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so immediately we're like, okay, now we're dealing with water and Spirit. Where are we? Well, he set all of this up in John 1, John 2, when he's talking about John the Baptist, and he's talking about John's baptism. What did John say? I baptize with water, but one is coming after me who's greater than me, the, the, the shoelace I'm not worthy to tie, he'll baptize you with the Spirit. And in, one, in, in the, the other Gospels, it says, with the Spirit and with fire. And so instead of looking at this as two different births, you see it instead as the two parts of the rebirth. You see, John's baptism was water. It was a baptism of repentance. And John was doing the Jewish thing, right? The Jews baptized. The Jews baptized for two reasons. They baptized to purify, to restore uh, ceremonial cleanness, and they baptized in preparation for some feast or festival that was coming. That's exactly what John did. He called people to repentance, to be baptized, to be purified, in order that they would be prepared for the coming Messiah. But it was always a baptism related. Now, listen, this is where it can be difficult to understand. When I'm talking about baptism, I'm not talking about the act of getting baptized in water, even though I'm saying water baptism. When, when they would use the word baptism like that, it became a euphemism for the teaching and practices of that particular teacher. So John was, a, uh, his, his teaching was baptism of repentance, water baptism. Jesus' teaching was baptism of transformation, spirit baptism. Are y'all tracking with me still? If you are, you get an A for the class. 
But John was all about repentance. And his baptism was Jewish style because John was the Old Testament. John represented the Old Testament. He was the last of the prophets. In fact, this happened one time uh, when John was in prison. He started hearing stories about Jesus hanging out with prostitutes and tax gatherers. He started to wonder, you know, in, in his heart, Satan sowed those seeds of doubt. And he sends his emissary to Jesus and said, are you the one or should we look for another one? And, you know, it's, it's, a guy said this. He said, when John said his worst about Jesus, Jesus said his best about John. He said, when, when you heard about John the Baptist, what did you go to see? Did you go to see a reed blown by the wind? No, you, you went to see a prophet. And he said this, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Among those born naturally, there is none greater than John the Baptist. It doesn't get any better than John. But, now listen to this. He who is of the, king, uh, he, he who is of the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Among those, compared to those who are in the kingdom, John is the least do you, do you feel the transition there? Do you feel the, the symbolism of what he's saying? John's baptism was the very best of the old. It was a baptism of repentance. But the spirit baptism is the, is the baptism of the new, and it's transformational. I think this is one of the reasons why the wedding feast at Cana uh, included the story of turning water to wine, because that water uh, represented the old covenant, and the wine always represents the new covenant. And, and so what we're seeing here is this beautiful symmetry of bringing through the Spirit this, this con context so that we would understand this verse. Water is John, is repentance. Spirit is Jesus, it's belief. John said, I baptize with water. He's coming to baptize in the Spirit. So water equals John equals repent. Spirit equals Jesus equals transformed. And I even wonder if Nicodemus hadn't been baptized by John. I mean, I know that Pharisees came to be baptized by John, and John said, no, 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 no. Uh, you bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you're just playing games. I want to see some real repentance. But Nicodemus wasn't like them. Remember, he's, he's, not on, their, he's on their bus, but he's not like them. And, and I, I wonder, did he get baptized by John? Just Here's a guy that's seeking. He's trying to deal with his sin. Maybe he did. And in that moment, I'm sure he came up out of that water. He felt reborn and repentance and confession is so liberating. And yet without transformation, the old thing returns, right? And all the guilt and shame and sin comes back. Here's the thing. Listen, repentance and feeling sorry for your sin is never enough because no matter how well-intentioned, you still have not changed. The Spirit changes us. Now, let me say this. Jesus did not invalidate John's baptism and the need for repentance. He didn't say... Forget water baptism, forget water, forget what John did. You need to be baptized in the Spirit. He said, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, you see? And so he's saying to, to be born of the water is not enough. You have to be born of the Spirit because that's where the transformation happens. And so we're back to Romans 10, 9. Listen to this. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. That's repentance. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That's belief and you shall be saved. There's two parts to it. It's all the same idea. Repentance is like, if this is my sin, repentance is to turn from sin. And in the moment that I turn from sin, I'm to turn to Jesus, if those crosses out there represent Jesus. So that transformation occurs in two steps, repentance 
and faith. And when I believe, I receive. It's all happening simultaneously. And the power of the Holy Spirit indwells my life. And I was thinking about this. We tend to want to turn to Jesus without turning from sin. Isn't that what we do? And we want to talk about it only as if it were belief and not repentance. It's like we're inviting somebody to join the country club. Man, you just need to believe. You just need to receive. You know, God's got a plan for your life. He wants to do great things in your life. You just got to believe it and receive it. And we never talk about repentance. And as a consequence, we get cheap faith and cheap grace. The the Pharisees had the opposite problem. They tended to want to turn from sin without turning to Jesus. They wanted to repent but not trust. And so they were all balled up in legalism. That's because the legalist always thinks they can do it themselves. But grace says, no, you can't. Forgiveness can only be received through believing in Christ. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh. In other words, that which you do in the flesh is always going to be fleshly. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And flesh always referred to two things. It referred to human frailty, first of all. Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but look, the flesh is weak. And Paul would talk about this, Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into the bondage of sin. So there's a weakness to the flesh. And secondly, it referred to human effort. Galatians 3, 3, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so what we know from that is salvation can't be achieved through actions of the flesh. Uh, Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Jesus was saying to this troubled man, the same thing he would say to you. As long as you keep trying to earn salvation through your own efforts, you're always going to live in the frailty of human effort and flesh is always going to be flesh. You have to be born of the Spirit, and that takes faith in Him. You have to be born again. There's no other way. You have to be born again. You see, as long as you're chained to legalism, you're always going to be troubled with doubt. Isn't that, you talk to anybody that's trying to live up and be good enough to be accepted by God, and you say, hey, do you know for certain if you were to die right now, you'd go to heaven? And you know what they'll tell you? Man, I hope so. I'm doing the best I can. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you must be born again. And that's not a work that you can do. John Wesley, the famous founder of the Methodist church, used to travel around Wales and England, and he loved to preach that sermon, you must be born again. Somebody came to him and said, why do you always preach you must be born again? And Wesley said, because you must be born again. There's only one kind of Christian, the born-again kind. If you're not born again, then you're not. If you are born again, then you are. You don't even have to say born-again Christian. It's redundant. You're either born again or you're a Christian. So do you want to be born again? Here's what it takes. You have to be aware of the need. That's what drove Nicodemus to meet with Jesus. He was aware of his sin. Secondly, you have to humble yourself. It's a humbling thing to admit that you're a sinner in need of grace. It's a humbling thing to admit, I can't do this myself. He was there. That's why he was there. And none of the other Pharisees were. And you have to be willing to surrender. At that point, you have to say, God, this is bigger than me. I can't do it. I surrender myself to you. That's, you know, let me, I hate to spoil the, the, the talk, but. 
you know, that's what happened with Nicodemus. After Jesus was crucified and they were pulling his dead body off the cross and preparing it for burial, guess who showed up? Nicodemus. Look at John 19, 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. In that moment, Nicodemus stepped out of those shadows of nighttime into the blinding light of day and identified himself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And man, word must have spread through the Jewish power system like a Canadian wildfire. Did you hear about Nicodemus? He has taken his wealth, invested it in myrrh and aloes, and thrown it away on the dead body of a dead Savior. And in that moment, Nicodemus lost everything. His life would never be the same. In fact, you might say he was born again. Have you ever been born again? Do you want to be? Would you pray with me right now? Just heads and bowed, heads, heads bowed before the Father, our hearts tuned to Him. Do you know that you've come to a point in your life where you've surrendered to Christ? Teaching's not going to fix it. More works won't make it better. You must be born again. And so you come to a point and you say this prayer, God, I admit my sin. Father, I believe in the name of Jesus and I call upon the name of Jesus to save me forever. And I confess Jesus as Lord of my life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of transformation that occurred in Nicodemus's life and in lives ever since. It's not enough for us, Father, to feel bad about our sin. We have to put our faith in the shed blood of Christ and His work on the cross. And when we do that, Your transforming power erases our past. It's as if it never occurred as far as east is from west. You remove our sins. And we are made new, born again. I pray for those that need to be born again right now, whether it's in this room or they can hear my voice on the internet or on the radio, whatever it is, Father, that you would do that work in their life in this moment. Thank you for the transforming power of your Holy Spirit in this place. And Father, those of us who know the name of Jesus, who have been born again, Father, we want to commit together to you that that's our message. We're not going to call people to, to try to do better, act better, live better. Father, we're going to call people to the cross. And our message is going to be simple and straightforward. You must be born again. If you want to be changed, if you want to be forgiven, you have to be born again. And we thank you for the privilege of participating in the gospel story in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.